There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 420. And today I'm joined by outdoor writer and bow hunter Tony Hansen to discuss his book, An Antler Geek's Manifesto, The Foundational Principles of a DIY Deer Hunter. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light. And today, as I just mentioned, I've got Tony Hansen here with me on the show. Now, Tony's someone who a lot of you are probably familiar with. He is a fellow Michigan bow hunter. He has been in the whitetail hunting outdoor media world for a long time. You've possibly seen his videos, his podcasts, his articles across many different locations, uh, maybe most prominently in the pages of Outdoor Life magazine. Uh, He's worked with Whitetail Properties. He's done a lot. And what I've always appreciated about Tony is that he gets it done the hard way. He hunts in heavily pressured places all on his own, doing his own thing in places like Michigan by permission or most of the time, a lot of the time on public land across the country too. And what he's done in this book is he has taken decades worth of experience and he has distilled all of these experiences, all this trial and error down into a simple system. This book, An Antler Geek's Manifesto, is his system for killing mature bucks in, you know, normal everyday conditions that any one of us could do without a lot of money, without a lot of property, you know, doing it by permission, doing it on public land, uh, and doing it yourself. And Tony has... The, the most unique thing about this is that he has shown exactly what he does, and it's not overcomplicated. There's a few core principles that he follows all the time. And if he follows these core principles all the time and follows a couple simple steps, he gets the job done. And it's a breath of fresh air in the whitetail hunting world today that is so complicated. And And honestly, I say that as a guilty party. Like I realize that I'm someone who geeks out on all the details. We talk to 10 million different people and get all these different ideas. And that's a lot of fun. I enjoy it, but it can also sometimes make things overcomplicated. And Tony has stripped all the BS off. He's stripped all the complicated things and 
given us these simple steps to success. This is what works for him. And he's got opinions and perspectives in here that not everyone's going to agree with. That's okay. Uh, But this is him. This is who he is. This is what works for him. And it's pretty cool. And it's something that I think we could all learn from. And so today, what I want to do is walk through this book with him to talk through what these foundational principles are, how he came to them, and how he's been able to develop a system that makes deer hunting more fun. And of course, makes him more successful. So I think you're going to enjoy this one. Tony's got a lot to share. And uh, I'm excited. I'm excited to have this conversation. So with no further ado, let's get right into it. Let's talk with Tony Hansen. All right, with me now on the line is Tony Hansen. Tony, welcome back to the show. Hey, it's good to be here. Yeah, I appreciate you making the time. And I'm excited about this one. We we haven't talked on the podcast for a number of years now. I think when I got you on the show last I was sitting in my truck recording it in Montana while I was in between. I think I just had wrapped up a Montana whitetail hunt and I was recording in my truck. And now today I'm recording my truck in Idaho. So this seems to be a theme, <laughs> but, uh, but I don't have a filled tag and a buck in the back of the truck on this one. So I think, uh, I think it'll still be a good chat. And what got me wanting to have this chat, Tony, was your book that you published last year. An Antler Geeks Manifesto. Why'd you write this book? Why was that something you wanted to do now? Because you've done a lot of stuff in the outdoor and deer hunting world. Why was now the time to write this? Uh, I guess there was a, a couple of reasons. Um, honestly, the primary reason was just to to say that I had done it. Um, I had talked so long, I don't even know, a number of years, probably three or four years ago is when I had the outline for this. And had messed around with it. And at the time, you know, I was fairly active in the outdoor media world still and thought that it would be a lot easier to get it done that way. But, you know, it never happened. So I guess the primary reason I did it was just to show myself that I could. It was also, I hadn't, um, you know, in the last, well, I guess five years or so, I've definitely taken a step back from the outdoor media world. And it was just kind of a way to sort of dabble back into it, but on my own terms and my own way. And that's really why it's all self-published and self-edited. So, you know, I definitely want people to understand if they do read it, they're probably going to find a typo or something. Um, Nobody else has had a finger in any of it except me. And that's not the best way to get, you know, absolutely perfect copy and everything. So you might find a typo. And the cool thing about um, self-publishing, if you find it, you can tell me and I can get it changed, um, on future orders that, you know, I can change the, the system on Amazon real quick. So that was a primary reason. I guess the second reason was, um, more for myself to kind of just get my thoughts in order of how all of these years that I've done this sort of stuff in terms of do it yourself hunting. I feel like I have a system now a little bit. And I wanted to just organize it. And I thought, well, if I can organize it in a book and help some other people, that's a good way to do it. So those are, those are you know, the two main reasons that I decided to do it. And of course, COVID played a role. Um, I had the time all of a sudden. All my turkey season stuff was pretty right. much shot. Um, you could, I'm not super social, so it wasn't like I was missing out on the bar scene and everything. But, 
there was no ball games to go to. My all my daughter's um, musicals and things. She's super big into theater. You know, for the first time in my life, I my adult life, I guess, I didn't have things to do five or six nights a week. So I just started writing. What was that process like? Was it was it what you expected? Was it what you wanted? It was actually a lot easier because I always thought. I had some uh, Jeff Sturgis books. Um, I, I like Jeff. I think yep. he's a good dude. And I like his books. And they're about the right length of what I wanted. I had no idea how many words go into a chapter. I didn't know. And I thought, man, I don't know if I'm going to be able to fill up a book. But And it's not like a giant book. It's not a novel. And I didn't want it to be. I wanted it to be about that, the size that it turned out. So it was actually a lot easier than I thought. Um and came together really fast. I probably wrote it in a week and a half, two weeks. Wow. Um, I had some of the chapters sort of started, but it wasn't a big deal. And then I just went through and learned how you do the layout. And you, I just used the Amazon service and um, Kindle publishing thing. So it was fun. It wasn't anything unexpected, really. Um, I knew that self-editing was going to be tough, so I probably read it more than any other drafts I would, like for magazine articles and stuff, I read through them a couple times and I hand them off to people who are really good at it, yep. at editing. With this, I probably had to read it a little bit more, and I'm sure I still miss stuff, but, um, and I still do. I mean, I was reading it over last night to look through some things, and I found one typo, so I already changed it today, but it wasn't a surprise. It, it kind of went the way I wanted it to go. Um but I also realized after rereading it a couple times, there's a bunch more stuff that I wanted to include that maybe I'll do a follow up on sometime. Yeah, it's 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 funny rereading, at least for me, rereading anything I've written is always a little bit painful. If it's if some time has passed, I always look at it again I'm like, ah, geez, I wish I'd include this. I wish I'd done that. Uh, so it's nice in your case with this setup that you can go in there and make updates for future printings and stuff. That's a. Uh, that's a really nice benefit of the way you did it with the self-publishing. Yeah, exactly. And I always kind of joke around whoever's got like the first three copies with a hundred typos in it, you know, it'll be like the Tom Kelly books, the yeah. Gene Wentz books. You're going to be paying on eBay $5,000. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> so what about, what about for people reading this? So for you, you want to do it because it was going to force you to kind of synthesize your system and put it on paper and organize it. But what about for the people that you wrote it for to read it what's your pitch to them like what does someone get when they pick up this book why should someone read this book and not so-and-so's other deer hunting guide to success so if if you want to kill big deer older deer um more than one time in your life you have to understand that whatever it was that you did if you can't duplicate it the the bottom line is you're never going to do it again so if Somebody shot 150 or 160 inch deer and they're like, man, I want to make this a regular thing. It won't be unless you have some sort of formula or plan or system. And so what I tried to do is just literally tell people, this is what I do. And I know with absolute certainty that if you do it in the right places and you can shoot reasonably well at 25 yards, you'll kill a big buck and you'll kill more than one. I have no doubt that it will happen because if I can do that, which I do, this is how. And I really wanted to just show people that um, it doesn't take a bunch of money. It does definitely take some and it takes time. 
but you don't have to be anything special. I'm certainly not. And I fully expect in the coming fall, I mean, I'm going to shoot at least one deer that's four years old or older and maybe two or three. And the only way you do that is you have to be able to repeat what it was you did to make it possible. Um, you can get lucky once everybody does, but you can't get lucky twice. Usually not with older deer. Yeah. What I like about this book and and we'll talk about this more when we get into your foundations, your, those main principles, but Mm -hmm. I think the secret, uh, not the secret, but something that really stands out about this book, I guess, is that it's a little bit counter to popular media in that, and even this podcast, if you listen to this podcast enough, people have heard 72,000 different ways to deer hunt and so many different little details you could do and so many different little things that one guy will say, you have to do this thing. Another guy says, you got to do this other thing. And they could be complete opposites and it can get complicated, especially if you're a little bit newer and you don't have your own system in place. I think it's probably fair to say there's a lot of people out there who can get just their head spinning with all these different ideas. And something that really stood out with what you've put here on paper is a really streamlined, clear, relatively uncomplicated system for success. It's, 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 you've kind of cut away all the fat and all the bullshit and said, Hey, here's a few simple steps. And if you focus on this stuff and if you execute on it and you have fun, this, this is a system for success. You don't need to worry about the 10,000 other things. You don't need to worry about the, all the fancy gizmos and gadgets. This is a proven simple system that works. And there's, there's a lot of value in that. I mean, someone could say they could write a 10,000 or a, I don't know, a thousand page book of encyclopedia of, of every different idea out there. And they could say that's really valuable, but in some ways it's almost less valuable because it's so damn confusing. So I, I liked that about this. And, and I think the first thing you did, which, which I thought was a nice way to organize it and really hammer home those most important things is you've kind of delineated these foundational principles that everything else revolves around. And I thought that'd be a good place to start diving into your system. Mm-hmm. Can you, can you walk me through principle number one and, and, and what it is, why it's so important. Um, and then we can kind of go from there. Yeah. The, the first one is really the one that matters and that's that pressure is the single most important factor. Um, everything else, all the other principles, all the other stuff in the entire book is all hinged on hunting pressure. And if you are thinking you're going to have consistent success on older deer, and when I say older, I'm, I'm thinking four years old and older. In some places, it's probably needs to be three-year-olds or you'll just never shoot a deer because it's so rare to see one older than three. But you cannot have that if there's too much hunting pressure. They simply do not live long enough, and I beat my head against that wall way too long. And the flip side of of that is, too, even if there are older deer, like, you know, what we have here in Michigan, there's there's getting to be some pockets where we can have three-year-olds fairly regularly, uh, some four-year-olds, some five-year-olds. But the hunting pressure part of it makes those deer so difficult to hunt that you can spend your entire season trying to shoot one of them and never even see the deer. So everything that happens when I'm deciding how to hunt, when to hunt, where to hunt 
it's all about hunting pressure. And if there is hunting pressure, I'm just not, I'm not doing it. Um, I don't pick places to go if I think there's going to be a bunch of people. Um, you know, a classic example, and I'm sure this will upset some people or get offended, Illinois. I will never hunt there. Um, there's, It's got a great reputation. It's got a, you know, a whole book full of big deer in the record books. I've been there twice. There's so much hunting pressure. It's, it's non-functional for me and how I want to hunt. So even though the data would indicate a state like that would be really good to go to, I, I just won't go there. So every decision that I make, every um, thing that I've developed in my quote unquote system, it's all based on the hunting pressure because that's the one thing that I don't think I can overcome really. Um, I can work around it. I can deal with it, but I can't solve it. Um, and it makes a big once you start figuring out what hunting pressure does and how deer respond and the difference when they aren't pressured, um, it's, it's like a light bulb goes off. It's yeah. not, it's really not that hard to shoot big deer when they're not pressured. And you know? in your approach is a little bit different than a lot of people on that. I mean, most everyone says hunting pressure matters a lot. It impacts everything. Um, but a lot of people say that, recognize that, but if you hunt in a place of heavy pressure, a lot of folks do a bunch of stuff to try to have success in those heavily pressured areas, right? There's all sorts of books about bow hunting in pressured areas, et cetera. Uh, your ideas is like, screw screw that spot. I'm going to find where it's not. And so rather yeah. than beating my head against a wall in the spot where it's so pressured and and screwed up, your idea is kind of let's save my time and energy for somewhere where it's better spent. So just cross that stuff off the map and, and move on to something different. So in a lot of cases for you, it sounds like, you know, from what I've seen over our years and then also reading the book, right? A lot of that means you travel to other States, but you do still hunt our home state of Michigan, which of course gets a lot of pressure. It's one of those States. We, we both know it that gets hammered. Um, so talk to me about how you handle this hunting pressure thing here in Michigan, because in most cases you're saying, write it off the map, forget it. But what mm -hmm. about when you do want to hunt local and we know that almost everything is heavily pressured here? How do you, how do you think through this principle in Michigan or if someone lives in Pennsylvania or New York and they still want to do some local hunting? Yeah. So the first thing I do is I make sure I'm not the problem. Um, I'm not going to be the one that's putting any of the pressure on. So I don't do any preseason scouting really at all. I think it doesn't work in pressured situations. And I think it's counterproductive in a lot of situations. Trail cameras, uh, the cell, the cell service trail cameras certainly have changed that quite a bit and I will use those, but I'm not even going to worry about what buck is where in July or August. Cause if, I get there the first week of October and there's a couple of trucks parked there or on the neighbors, that buck's not going to be there anyway, or he's not going to be huntable. He's going to be pretty nocturnal. Um, I really, I enjoy John Eberhardt stuff. I've learned a lot from his books and he talks about hunting pressure. And I think what people misunderstand is he's, if you really read it, what he's saying, he's not saying, here's how I deal with the hunting pressure. He's saying, here's how I avoid it. I find all of this stuff in the, you know, I'm still going to hunt in Michigan. It's still super pressured, but I'm not going to hunt the spots that are getting super pressured. 
he's going to find the locations where the deer feel safe. And that's kind of what I do. So in Michigan, yeah, I'm, I'm going to write off those spots that are just getting pounded. But if that's the only property that I have access to and I want to hunt, I'm still going to hunt it, but I'm going to try to hunt the place that isn't getting pressured, if that makes any sense. And the only way I've figured out to do that is I, I just have to do all of my scouting in the season and I do it based on, I'll take the first week to 10 days of October and go around any of the places that I have to hunt, including public ground. And I'm just literally doing an inventory. Is somebody hunting this? And if they are, I'm, I'm, I'm done with it. I'm not going to mess with it because I can't, I can't control them, which means I can't control that pressure, which means I can't, I can't think for myself because I can't, I don't have any, there's too many variables to it. So I just bump around seven to 10 days, the first 10 days of October. And then I start to figure out, okay, this place isn't getting hunted as hard or they're hunting the South end and not the North end. And that's when I start to do my scouting and I'm going to use the cameras and see if there is a deer that I want to hunt in there. It's all about making sure wherever I'm going to be, it's the least amount of pressure that I could have gotten. Obviously in other states, much easier, much different, you know, because there's not necessarily that there's less hunting pressure. There's more space for it to be spread around. You know, if you take even a state like Ohio, where there's lots of hunters and you've hunted their mark, Mm -hmm. um, you get in Southern Ohio and drive around a little bit and you start to realize, okay, 150,000 bow hunters here is a whole lot different than 150,000 bow hunters in Southern Michigan because there's so much more available ground and escape. You know, they can really get away. Yeah, definitely. Definitely different. I, I want to talk more about your scouting, both your your off-season scouting and why you don't do it so much and all that. But before we get to that, I think we got to talk about principle number two because principle number two is all about choosing those spots that are worth scouting, that are worth spending time on uh, and all that kind of stuff. And you've got, uh, again, a little bit of a, a different idea around this that that makes sense, but it is a little different. Can you walk me through foundational principle number two and how you got to this? Cause he had some pain points that kind of led to this one for you. Yeah. So you, your earlier question about, you know, what was their difficulty in the book, et cetera. This was by far the hardest part of it to write because it's hard for me to explain it. It's very clear in my head and it's very clear what I do. It's hard to explain it. So this, this principle is you can't invest into something that you don't own. Basically meaning you can't go out and put a lot of time and effort and energy into property that you're hunting by permission or that you're leasing. And this all came about because I had a a property here in Michigan that I leased for, I don't even remember how long. I know it was at least 10 years. It might've been closer to 15. I don't remember when I first started, but I lost that two years ago, I guess. Um, Just a phone call in the spring saying, hey, I'm not going to lease it anymore. And that really, like, it all came crashing down because I thought, okay, now I spent almost $40,000 on this place in lease fees. Who knows how much money in food plots. I spent additional money on cameras and stands that I probably wouldn't have before. All of that money stuff obviously hurt. But what really hurt is I'm now going into, I've got three months to figure out a property And I can't, I never, I, you know, you can't take 
10 or 12 years of experience and replace it in three months. So everything that I invested into that property was a complete and total waste. Yeah, I killed some decent deer and I had some good hunting, but I can't use it again. I can't do it going forward. So now what I do, the only thing that I will invest a lot of time and effort and really any money at all into is something that I own. And that's either obviously private land that you own, which I don't own any right now, or public land that can't be taken away. And there's some gray areas there, but for the most part, I'm talking about state and federally owned um, property that I will never lose. It doesn't mean that I don't hunt someplace that someone gave me permission to hunt. I will. What it does mean is I'm not going in there and doing a bunch of extra effort or work. I'm not trying to force to my way to find time because nobody, it doesn't matter who you are. We None of us have the amount of time to hunt that we want. So you have to make it. And that means taking time away from family or whatever it is. If I'm going to take that time away, it's going to be spent on a place I know I'm never going to lose. And if I had done that, maybe I don't kill a five or six or seven year old buck, whatever, you know, I've got some of those on that place I leased, but I would be going into the future seasons knowing that I have a pretty good spot figured out. I'm going to be able to do the things that I want to do. It just, you know, like I said, it's hard to explain, but the bottom line is when you're investing the amount of time and energy into those places, you have to know it's going away. And it it is, you're not going to be able to keep those places. If you lease them or have permission, it's all going to, it's all going to come to a head and it's going to stop. So I just won't do it anymore. Um, Definitely a hard concept to understand and very counter to what a lot of people would think, but that's the way I do it right now. And so the big thing here is, is if you, it's all that time and energy and knowledge that you sink into Mm -hmm. these places. And if you could never cash in on that knowledge again, because it's gone. And of course the money, what's the point? So, so you're sticking with land you own or public land. That's always going to be there. Talk to me about those two options. So what about for folks that want to buy, what's the Tony Hansen take on buying land? I know you've got some experience both owning land yourself and being someone who sells land. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you give me a little bit of your thoughts there for someone listening? And, and if they want to take that leap, uh, a little bit of perspective on that? I've never met someone who bought land who regretted it. And I, you can't say that about very many things. Um, there's certainly been people who bought it and then it was, it didn't turn out to hunt the way they wanted, et cetera. And they ended up, you know, flipping it and getting something else. But I've never met someone who bought property and be like, I wish I hadn't done that. Owning your own land is the only way you're ever going to be able to truly control all the variables that you want to control. I do think it's more affordable than people think. If you think about, if you're spending two, three, four grand a year on a lease, I know you can buy land for that. It might not be the 80 acres you want, but um, I know you can buy a smaller piece and probably do just as well if you buy it, you know, the right way and get the right types of things on that smaller property. You can own it. Um, It's not as hard as people think. It does take some discipline. You do have to save money for down payment and all of that. But in the long term, I wish that I had started buying land a lot sooner than I ever did. 
And I know going forward that that's, you know, another person I had some and I sold it because the market got really good, honestly. Um, and so seems like that's the thing you do when you have a smaller piece, you can flip it and get something bigger. So someday I'll do that. But I don't think if anybody's considering it or on the fence, I think you need to really look into it because you're not, I don't know how you would ever regret doing that. And if someone wants to do that and let's, let's take the scenario, small properties, cause that's where most people start. Uh, you, you, three most important things when buying a small property or something along those lines, what are those things that you're looking for or would recommend to someone? Well, the first one is budget. Don't overspend. Um, that's just a personal thing. People get in trouble doing that. So obviously stay within your means. I like the location. Obviously, there are parts of Michigan that I would much rather have land in, and I'm sure it's that same way in every state. And the third thing, especially if it's a smaller piece, um, the shape of it matters. So let's say you're buying 15 acres. I don't want a square. I want a rectangle. I want it to be deeper than it is wide because that's going to get you further off the road. It's going to get you more depth into different habitats and different cover types. And if possible, it's this is not as common in Michigan, but places like um, Ohio, Missouri, Indiana, I'd really like it to be landlocked with an easement, like an access through someone else's place to get mm-hmm. further off the road. Yeah. And I'd love it if it uh, borders like a big piece of public like in Southern Ohio or Southern Indiana, then you can really have something special. Now, some people would look at that and say that that sounds a little counterintuitive because they're going to hear next to public land where there's going to be tons of pressure and they're going to be shooting all the deer and pushing stuff all around. Why do you not think that? It depends on the type of terrain, but I can tell you, I was just, I did a one day turkey trip to Southern Ohio yesterday my legs are screaming at me today and I feel like I'm kind of crazy. I do a lot of things people won't do. I promise you there were hills I stopped and turned around. The average person wouldn't get to that point. <laughs> if you have, if it's the way that that public lake is out and it's got those types of hills and ridges, uh, you're not going to see very many people. And if you do see someone like that, you should be very, uh, you should be happy and celebrate with them because they're doing something that 99.9% of the population will not do. Yeah. And that's, and it's not just about getting deep. I mean, it's, you have got to go over some crazy stuff in some of those places. And if you're on the backside of that, you know, a mile, two miles, three miles from that road access, um, you're going to be pretty much hunting deer that are, untouched. Yeah. So talking about public land, I I like the fact that within this, the way you think about this, that you look at public land as something that is worth investing in because as you know, as an American, you do own it, right. Per se. And it's not going to be taken away from you. Um, hopefully. And, um, talk to me about that side of things. You've got, I, I really like the process you go through when it comes to finding public land that you think is worth hunting. You've got a, a hell of a system there that's a little different than some people. Can you walk me through that research process of how you go about figuring out those new spots you're going to check out? Yeah, and it's I'm almost an addict to, you know, like Onyx and Google Earth and all of that stuff. A lot of people sit around at night watching The Bachelor. I sit around at night watching <laughs> Google Earth and Onyx. Um, I start by looking at, obviously, the amount of land that I would have 
to choose from. I'm just, I've learned over time, I can't go someplace and have two or three options because I, I've gotten burned where I've done that. You know, here I've just driven 10, 11 hours and I spent whatever hundreds of dollars on this tag. And I get there and the two or three options that I thought were awesome are not good. And now I'm really scrambling and scrambling is never going to be productive when you've only got five or six days in a place you probably have never been. So I need 15 to 30 options that I could get to. I'm also different. I, I think it's why a lot of you know my friends that used to hunt with me, they really don't like to. It has no problem. I have no problem getting up in the morning and driving 70 miles to a spot and then another 150 to look at another one. And then coming back, you know, 180 the other way, it does not bother me to do a big, big area when I'm looking at stuff, but I got to have a lot of options. So I look at that once you look past, you know, and say, okay, there's, there's enough ground that I can work with. Obviously I look at the number of licenses that are sold. That is kind of the only number that doesn't lie. Um, you can see lots of stuff on line forums about this buck was killed. This buck was killed, but I need to know how many people actually are out hunting and have hunting licenses. That really dictates a lot of the pressure to me. Do you like to look at the county level or just state level on that one? State level. I mean, most states, you can't get a whole lot deeper than that. Some states have, um, you know, they break down the number of deer that were tagged in each county based on their telecheck. And that is, that's helpful. And generally when I see that, if, the area I want to go to, if like, say there's six counties and three of them had really high deer kills and two of them were medium and one was lower, I'm going to the one with lower if the habitat's the same. Because in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, there's just fewer people hunting there, but it's still the same stuff. And the way I confirm that, and maybe this is different, I don't know if a lot of people do, I look at real estate listings all the time and I'm looking at their trail cameras and seeing what type of deer around those cameras and i can usually tell by the way this is going to sound horrible but i can tell by the way the listing is written if the person who listed it knows anything about deer hunting yeah and i can tell by the way the cameras are set up if that person really is a serious deer hunter and if they're a non-serious deer hunter and it's listed by someone who's not that serious about deer hunting and there's nice bucks on there i get super excited because i'm like they have that area in general probably doesn't put a high emphasis on deer hunting. So that's someplace I might be able to make some hay. So I just use, you know, sources like that to figure out where are these public areas that I I do want to hunt. Yeah. So you look at when it, going back to the numbers, you've got this kind of formulaic approach, I guess, maybe you call it when you're looking at license sales, number of deer killed. And then I think if I remember right, you also talked about just general human population. Yeah. Can you talk yeah. through though how you weigh those things? Because you you've got an interesting approach on that. Yeah, I mean, to me the easiest part is I just go by the principles and the number one is pressure is more important than everything. So, if I have two very similar areas that I'm trying to decide between, I'm going to go to the one that has fewer people. I look a lot at town size. Um, it's a pain in the butt, but I don't like to be near a town that has hotels because that's where people will stay. So I'm looking at the population density of the county, the total population, which can be misleading because some counties, so like in Kansas, have 
more people than the county I live in here, but the ground area is four times larger. So you do have to look at the density a little bit too. And um, I'm going to try to pick those places where as few people would ever venture as possible. And generally speaking, if you have a hotel or something, I'm going to draw about a 25 or 30 mile circle around that town and stay away from it. Yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense. Probably is that hard to find spots like that that meet yes. all those criteria? Yeah. It's 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 less hard to find the spots. It's harder to figure out, okay, if I'm going for a week in November, what am I gonna do? Cause I kind of have to stop and sleep somewhere. And I have a camping setup right in the back of my truck, just a cheap thing that I made. I can't always do that in November because I do get cold. Yeah. And it at some point it, it's like I'm totally willing to take the abuse and to go, you know, and suffer. But at the same time, I do this because I enjoy it. And am I enjoying it now when it's 20 degrees at night and I'm freezing and I can't sleep and I'm parked literally in somebody's pasture and I'm waiting for them to come shoot me? (laughs) You know, there's a fine line there. Takes a little fun out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what about the rest of your digital, I don't want to call it stalking, but digital snooping. Um, you talked about the real estate listing stuff, which is super smart, but you also talked about using some social media, some forums, videos, stuff like that. How does that factor into your kind of fact checking of these areas you find appealing? Yeah. So that's kind of one of the secrets. I, it's not really secret, but sometimes I wish I hadn't given it away because people will stop doing it. But (laughs) If they talk about a place and you could, I guess you could do it in reverse. If you talk about a place online and, and there's a lot of chatter about it, I'm not going to hunt it because everybody's looking at it and they're like, and the classic example of this, the Woodbury wildlife area near Coshocton, Ohio, I'll just throw it out there because it's not a secret anymore. Back in the day, my friends and I, we would go down there and we would waylay the turkeys. It was so stupid. I mean, I think we killed eight in one day with 10 of us. <laughs> wow. And now there was a story that, and this is like 10 or 12 years ago, the story came out a lot of like the Michigan sportsman forums and stuff were just coming up and a lot of chatter on it. And now it's really a shell of itself. And it's a hundred percent because people saw online when they're researching, like I'm doing they're like, man, people say this is good. Let's go there. I do the opposite. If people say it's good, I go somewhere else. Um, because I figure a lot of people are doing that and saying, yeah, I'll check this place out. It's got a good reputation. Um, I just don't go anywhere. Now, if I look up a, a public area and I don't see much chatter, I get really excited about that. And I'm really careful about what I'll say about it. Like, you know, kind of now I really don't tell anybody what states I hunt anymore. I'll say I'm, you know, in the Great Plains or lower Midwest. Um, but I don't mention a whole lot about the states anymore. Yep. With that in mind, did you have, do you have any worries about putting all this stuff out there? I mean, you've got a little bit of a process that's different than some that's helped you uniquely. Did you think at all about when you're writing this book? Just do I want everyone to realize that this is a way to go about it? I mean, it, I just thought of that when I'm thinking about the same thing, like not being super open about locations. It's something I do too. It can be worrisome. And I think about all of this myself. How do you process that yourself? I don't know. I go back and forth. Um, and I think 
I'm probably more selfish and greedy than I should be. I'm certainly less so than I was. And I think partly that's why I did write this is because I want to change that a little bit. I want to give back a little bit more, I think. But at the same time, I think I would rather have people out and this, this might rub some people wrong too. Like, especially on public land, I, I would rather have you hunting in a way that makes it possible for those deer to keep moving and to kind of keep the pressure down than doing it other ways that add a lot of pressure and bump a lot of deer and spook a lot of deer. It's not, it's not like I'm so smart that people couldn't figure this out, you know, all of these things in the book on their own, but I do want people to have success. I do want them to, you know, enjoy their time out there. And I think part of being in the communication field is it's kind of your duty to tell people what you've learned and experiences that you've had. And it's a formula. Yeah. But it's not like they're not buying a lottery, you know, like a a guaranteed lottery ticket here. I'm still going to struggle years where I don't kill any bucks and I wrote the book. Yeah. (laughs) So I don't know. I, I don't, I, I think about it, but at the same time, I think there's enough involved that you still have to kind of do the work yourself. Yeah. These things are always easier said than done. That's for sure. Oh, way easier. Yeah. yeah. So, so along those lines then, you know, talking about how it'd be probably beneficial for all of us if more folks that are hunting public land are doing it in a way that doesn't pressure and blow stuff up as much. That kind of ties into your whole scouting approach, which you touched on a little bit earlier, but I think is worth diving into a little bit more. Um, just the whole idea that you've kind of canned your preseason scouting and focused just on in season. And, and that's pretty, that's pretty contrary to popular opinion these days. A lot of folks are really, really into off season scouting. Um, is there any off season stuff that you think is still worth doing in your system? For sure. And it's what I do. It's literally the only reason I went down to Ohio yesterday. Um, the turkey season scouting to me is the most beneficial because I can only look at, I can only figure out so much on an aerial photo. I'm not, I mean, Google earth helps a ton, but I'm not great at reading, you know, the elevation lines and all of that and understanding exactly how steep this thing is. And a lot of that stuff down there, you have to wonder if it's coal mine reclamation or not And that hunts totally different than if it's, if it's not, it's, if you've ever seen it, you know what I'm talking about. That uh-huh. stuff that was mined and then is reclaimed is incredibly thick, and you have to do a lot of things different than it's if it's just normal hardwoods that's been managed and things. So the the boots on the ground and getting familiar with the property is super important, and that's why I think turkey season is a great time to do it because you can go out and explore, and you really can cover a lot of places fast you don't worry about what you're doing to the deer because it doesn't matter at that point outside of that i really don't have a whole lot of use for any other um scouting and now it's fun to get trail camera pictures of deer in velvet and i try because i enjoy it but i don't put any value in that almost at all and the idea is those bucks are relocating anyways in most yeah. cases right yes and if they don't that's fine because in michigan um it, most of the time, I'm not going to have any velvet pictures out of state because I don't leave my cameras out there in the public. But the only place that I would would be here in Michigan. And we don't have the most sophisticated of habitats. You know, it's a square wood lot, a square property. 
it's kind of easy to figure out if that buck did stay around. It's kind of easy to figure out what to do in early October, late October in the rut. So it's not like I have a lot to figure out. Yeah. But for the most part, those bucks are not going to stay there once the hunting pressure starts. Or if they do stay there, they're darn near unhuntable. They get really nocturnal, all the stuff, you know, you, you know this because you've lived it. Yeah. If you can get those deer unpressured and staying there, then you've got a chance. I just don't, I don't think the odds of that are very high when you have as many deer hunters as we have. So, so with that being the case, then you, 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 you hang back out of most of the stuff. You're not pressuring them in the summer. You're not pressuring them just before the season. Like a lot of folks do when they go out and set their stands the week before the season or something like that. Um, walk me through once season opens. I know you've got a, a, a kind of rule of three approach to kicking off the season on those traveling hunts or kicking off a hunt. Yep. But what about for your local stuff? How does that begin? Yeah, the, the local stuff is going to literally, you know, obviously begins the youth weekend a little bit, not so much because the places around me, um, the kids that I knew hunted are old enough. They don't hunt the youth season and they're not old enough to have kids yet. So that isn't as much of a factor. And I love the youth season. I want to keep it going. Don't, I don't want anybody saying that I'm thinking, saying anything other than that, but that is hunting pressure. So I just wanted to see if anybody was out. And then from the first week of October through about the 10th, like I said, I'm just going to go in the mornings, generally mornings um, and the weekends and evenings on the weekdays early in the season. And I'm just going to see who, if there's anybody parked at the places that I can hunt. And then around that 8th, 9th, 10th of October, if I've just found some places that aren't getting hunted super hard, I will go in, you know, midday and go through it pretty much as quick as I can. I'm not, you know, being an an idiot about it and running, but I'm, I'm going to walk right through it and I'm looking for scrapes. That's pretty much the only thing I'm looking for. If I see a big rub, I love it, but I'm really looking for the scrapes because that's going to tell me, okay, there's bucks in here and this is where they like to hang around and I will get a camera on it. Um, cell cameras now are obviously a godsend. So I run a lot of those and then I wait three, four five days and see what those cameras are picking up on those scrapes. And if I find one to hunt, then I already kind of know where I would put a stand based on, again, Michigan's not that hard to figure out where to set up. And uh, when I get ready to hunt, I usually will take the stand right with me that day, usually in an evening, you know, get it there just earlier, slip it up there and uh, and start hunting until the cameras tell me that something has changed. Um, it's it It seems like it's a lot of wasted time and it is when you don't really hunt the first two weeks but it's a waste of time for me to hunt the first two weeks because if i'm looking at other guys you know 100 yards away i'm not really hunting anyway pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service it's called the wellness company picture this okay you wake up you got a scratchy throat you're all congested you got a runny nose you got a cough whatever and you weigh your options like you tough it out get sick take time off work Try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months. Wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks. Or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription. And you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds. 
to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor, no waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash meat eater and use promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater at urgentcarekit.com slash meat eater. Hey, everybody knows Weber grills. I've been using Weber grills my whole life and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood pellet grill. Now with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear what I like to do on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, which gives you great smoke at 180 degrees, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. This, this, this is my way of bull saying. If I was going to cook roast one way, that's how I like to do it, sear roast. Utilize the smoke boost setting to intensify that smoky flavor. Direct flame cooking creates searing, crisping, and browning. Food's going to look as good as it tastes. This grill gets hot in 15 minutes. Cleanup is easy. Cook confidently with intuitive digital controls at the grill and enjoy the sleek, easy-to-use surface. You can also add a heavy-duty rotisserie or rust-resistant griddle insert to up your game. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill. Maybe I'm skipping ahead a little bit here, but you've got this rule of three approach for those travel hunts in which you... Well, let's take a step. Let's just talk about that first, and then we'll talk about how that applies to the next step on the private or your, your local stuff. So let's, let's now look at the same scenario. It's the beginning of your trip to wherever you're going, some great plain state or, or wherever you are, you maybe did a Turkey scouting trip, maybe not, but you did all of this e-scouting. You've got a bunch of potential locations. You looked at the numbers for deers, deer killed uh, human population. You've looked at the number of licenses sold and you've zeroed in on these zones. Now it's, late October or early November when you, or, or maybe it's November 15th when you take off after gun season. Talk to me about how you approach the beginning of that type of hunt and this rule of three. Yeah. So the, I try to time it if possible to get there so that I'm, I'm not arriving in the middle of the day because I just feel like there's only three, four five hours or whatever till dark kind of wasted time. I can scout a little, but I'm not going to get done what I want to get done. So I I try to make it so I'm either getting there, you know, after dark, sleeping and then getting right up early and going, or sometimes, and I do this a lot too, I literally will drive through the night so that I get there right when the sun's coming up and then I take off and start scouting. But the whole point is that first day is balls to the wall as hard as I can go, as many miles as I have, if there's no units, it is, I, I don't care if I go from the east side of the state to the west side until I find what I want, um, unless I'm restricted by a unit and a license. Um, and I'm looking for, for three spots that I can hunt. And by the end of that first day, I want to have one tree stand up so I can hunt the following morning or maybe the evening if I get lucky, and two trail cameras. And I don't want them in the same spot. 
obviously I'm going to put a trail camera where I put my tree stand, but I want two additional trail cameras. So I've got three things by the end of the very first day that I'm there that are sort of quote unquote hunting, you know, the cameras are always hunting for me. And then that first morning I will be sitting in a spot. I feel like deer are going through. And this was all in all of it kind of ties into, I was just wasting so much time out on these out of state hunts, scouting and, and doing all of that stuff that I was half of my week was gone and I hadn't decided on a place and it was non-productive and it didn't make any sense. I had to start trusting myself that I had picked the state, the county, the area based on research that I thought there was mature bucks there, better than average number of them and less hunting pressure. So when I find deer sign, buck sign like scrapes, I need to start assuming that those are the types of bucks I want to hunt and just start spending time there instead of trying to find the perfect spot on the spot all the time. And it really kind of opened the door to me killing a lot more of them because I wasn't wasting so much time. So, so the idea is basically get on the first pretty decent looking spot because you can learn so much more through observation, right? By being out there hunting and then also trust that you've got cameras in two other spots. Is that, is that the idea versus wasting time walking and walking exactly you know i just have to trust the fact that where i'm at has less hunting pressure than what i'm used to in those types of states with a good you know age structure and sex ratio and all that there's not a lot of yearling bucks making scrapes or really actively working those scrapes if you find a good active scrape and you know you know it when you see it that's likely going to be made by multiple deer that are over age two there's no reason to keep searching if you have a good ambush site and it's far enough off a road that you don't think they're just doing it you know at night as they cross to feed in a cornfield or something there's no reason to keep looking get a camera on it get a stand up get out of there go find another parcel find another similar you know set of scrapes get a camera on them get out of there go find another one get a camera on it and then you can start now you've got three spots that are telling you by the end of the first day what's here. Yeah. And hopefully that's all it takes. Sometimes I have to do it all again the second day. But generally speaking, that first evening I will have a camera or I will have a photo of a buck that I'd be happy to shoot. Yeah. So I'm sure there's some people listening who either are having a hard time visualizing what you're talking about when you're saying a great active scrape area, or maybe there's someone listening who's heard people talk about scrapes. They've heard people talk about primary scrapes. They've heard people talk Mm -hmm. about field edge scrapes, blah, 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 blah. Uh, Can you just paint a more detailed picture of exactly what this kind of scrape area looks like that for you is worth stopping on? Yeah. So the first thing I would say, if you're super interested in, in, just being more knowledgeable about deer, I would go to John Eberhardt's books about scrapes. He doesn't have a book about scrapes, but he writes a lot about them. Gene and Barry Wenzel are scrape geniuses. They have done so many discoveries on scrapes that, so anything that they've written. And then the Deer Lab, um, I think it's uh, South Carolina or whatever university has the Deer Lab. And that'll tell you all the different types of scrapes. What I tell you is I don't care what type of scrape it is as long as it's being pawed and peed in. 
<laughs> that's it. That's it. <laughs> okay. I care that it looks active and you can tell it's active and it's not, you know, just one of the, like the field edge or boundary or, or frustration scrapes. It's going to be fairly large, maybe, you know, the size of a, of a, like a snow sled saucer, one of those things. Yep. It's going to have at least one good looking branch and probably two or three. And if it's really one of those kind of hubs that people that the the bucks hit a lot, just stand at that scrape and look in a circle around you. And if you see one or two other scrapes in sight, that's you need to be there. And the reason I I love scrapes more than anything else is because there's no other sign in the woods besides a rub that tells you bucks use that area. And rubs are less. Um, they're less timely because you can have a rub that was made the first week of September or mid September as they're losing velvet. And that is going to be there until the end of the year. A scrape has to be hit every day or two for it to stay looking open and fresh and active. And that's what I want. And I also know a scrape is going to be hit by more than one buck. A rub probably isn't. So if I find those active scrapes, with some big rubs in the area there's zero reason to keep looking for another place to hunt and that's what i would do though i'd be like oh i need to go deeper or i really want to have three pinch points lining up here and i would just it was i was just paralyzed by analyzing all that stuff and wouldn't make good decisions and now the decision is easy i want to find the best spot i can as fast as i can and my version of best is does it have scrapes and can i hunt it and yeah. if it does, I'm going to hunt it. In your book, you talk a lot about, or you refer to sunspots as proximity areas. Yeah. What, do you, what do you mean by that? Is that just you like just a zone like be, this? or? Yeah, so um, you just need to be in the proximity of where a buck will, where he's living. You're not going to find that out um, in a week's time, generally. And especially on a place you've never hunted. You're not going to know where that buck beds. You're not going to know, especially anything west of the Mississippi. They they travel so far. I just need to be in a proximity of him that he will come through. And the scrapes tell me where he wants to be. It's not like, if you think about it in, in human terms, right? We do things opposite of what deer do. So like, say Mark wants to live in Idaho you're going to move to Idaho and buy a house and you're going to change all of your travel pattern around that house. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The scrape is the opposite. He already lives where he lives. He does what he does. The scrapes show up where he moves. So he doesn't like go, well, over there would be a beautiful spot for a scrape. Let me go over there and make that. He doesn't do that. He makes the scrape where he travels and where he expects other deer to be traveling and other bucks will be traveling. And that's why when you only have five, six days to hunt, you have such a leg up if you are hunting in an area where there are scrapes because those bucks are coming there. You hope they're coming there in daylight. You won't know until you start hunting it and get your cameras going, but you've picked a spot that's less pressured. So the odds are better that they're going to be doing it in the daylight. When when you're going on one of these rut traveling trips and you're looking for this kind of thing, um, mm -hmm. do you prioritize where you're going to walk and do your speed scouting to hit typical rut 
things? Because, right, we haven't talked about funnels or pinch points or dough bedding areas that a lot of people would be saying, yeah, focus on those kinds of places during the rut. You haven't said those words once um, mm-hmm. and hardly talk about it in the book at all. Do you still have that in the back of your mind as places that you want to look for these scrape type setups or forget it? I'm just covering ground until I find my scrapes. I it's for me, it's a little bit different because a lot of the places that have less hunting pressure or my version of less hunting pressure, like I'm trying to get zero to be honest with you, I'm trying to get zero hunting pressure. So I'm looking at places that are really not necessarily remote, but they're like on the fringe of what people would think would be good deer hunting. I mean, I've definitely hunted places that are the whole farm was 2,500 acres of walking access and there were three trees on it. And I really wanted to hunt that place. Not many sane people would do that. (laughs) Yeah. So I don't have to worry as much about the pinch points and that sort of thing because they're going to where the trees are. So the terrain and that, it kind of takes care of itself. They're going to travel along those, um, those Creek bottoms and drainages and finger ridges and things. Now, when you get into a place like Appalachia, Ohio, Southern Indiana, Missouri is in Appalachia, but it has similar type stuff. Then it, yes, it does matter more. And then I would have looked at saddles and funnels and things that I can figure out, but that's where the turkey season really comes in because I'm not good at that. I'm not good at seeing those digitally. I think I can find them and then I go there and I'm like, oh, this isn't what I thought. This is a straight cliff. Yeah. So I do have to get on the ground for those and I do that in turkey season. But for the most part, don't overthink it. The scrapes are there because the deer walked there. They walked there, whether it was a pinch point or a funnel, I don't care. They made a scrape. So they're there. You know, that's the part where I would, I would confuse myself and I would be thinking, I literally would, I can literally remember thinking, man, there's a bunch of big rubs and there's scrapes here, but there's no pinch point. So I'm going to keep looking. Mm-hmm. I've been there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's counterproductive. I mean, when you think of it that way, you're like, "Mm, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. So, and I don't, you know, it's not like I'm saying, here's a scrape. I'm going to hunt right over it. After I find the scrapes, then I'm looking in that area. What's the, what's the most likely spot the deer are going to walk through that I can pinch them down. And there are some, even in those like, you know, Kansas and Iowa type situations where they're Creek bottoms, there's certainly spots where you can do that. So if I'm within a hundred yards of that scrape, I'm fine. I don't care exactly how close or far I am. As long as I'm not too far away, I will move around and figure out the best, you know, situation for a stand. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Um, that being, you know, how you pick the tree once you found your, your zone with those scrapes, uh, what's your decision process to choose like, okay, this is where I'm going to hang my stick and stand. A lot of times, this is going to sound like a horrible answer, but a lot of times it's whatever tree I can get one in because a lot of them states that are, you know, west of the Mississippi with the cottonwoods, it doesn't matter what tree you want. You got to go with the tree that you can use. They're big, they're leaning, they're just terrible for stands. But if I have options, I want a tree where obviously I'm going to worry about the wind. I want to be on the, you know, the the side where I feel like the wind's going to be in my favor the most of the time. And I also like a tree with limbs. I, I, I just, 
feel safer in them and I have better cover. And I want to be, I really want to see the deer coming to the scrape rather than hit the scrape and going past me just because I feel like I have a little bit more time to my advantage when they're coming to a place they want to be than leaving a place that they want to be. Cause he could hit that scrape and turn around and go back the way he came. And I never get a shot if I'm on the other side of it. So there is a guessing game of which way they're coming from. But again, you can look at the rubs and see which side of the tree they're on. And you can look at your greater aerial view and be like, he's probably betting here and probably coming from that direction. So I try to be on the quote unquote upwind side. I don't mean literally the upwind side. I mean the travel side of the scrape. And I want a tree with a bunch of limbs so I can move around and not feel like I'm going to fall out. But a lot of times it depends on, you know, if there's just a bunch of giant cottonwoods, I kind of find whatever tree I can put it in. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you're pretty limited there. What about would you, here's one thing that I always wrestle with, which is, what if you do have multiple tree options, but one of them has great cover, but it's farther away from the spot you really think the deer is going to pass through? Or maybe it's you only have a shot at one of the shooting lanes or one of the trails, but then there's another tree that is perfectly located. Maybe it can shoot to the two different travel routes you're expecting and that scrape maybe, but it is a bean pole. It's wide open. Do you take the crappy tree in the right location or the better tree that limits you a little bit? I'm going to go again to the first principle where the pressure is what will make me decide. Um, I shot a deer two years ago. I think it yeah, it's two falls ago in the Great Plains. I was about nine and a half feet off the ground, beanpole straight tree. And he came from 300 yards away, walking right at me and hit four or five scrapes on the way. And I shot him. He was 18 inches from the bottom of the tree stand (laughs) or the base of the tree. Those deer, when they're not pressured, have zero clue that someone can shoot them from above. So I wouldn't worry too much about it. I would try to get my stand on the backside of the tree so I could hide a little bit. But I don't like shooting... I don't like shooting over 20 yards, so I'm going to lean more towards being closer and having a little bit better shots. And if I get busted, then I'm, then I'll adjust. But if those, it's amazing deer that aren't super pressured, they really don't pay any attention to tree stands. If I was in Ohio, if I was here in Michigan, I would go for the much better cover. Yeah. Yeah. So what about the the other side or the, the next step in your process? Once you find your spot, you found your tree. Uh, you mentioned that even at the spots where you hang your stand, you're going to put a camera. Uh, mm-hmm. Some people would say, don't ever put cameras near your tree stands because they might spook. Um, what's your take on that? And, and since you do it, how do you do it in a way that you're not worried about spooking deer with those camera placements? I can send you the picture of the camera that shot the deer that took the picture of the deer 15 seconds before I killed him. (laughs) Um, and I don't put this, I don't put the cameras on the tree stand tree or anything like that. I'm, I, they're always on a scrape. I won't put a camera out unless it's on a scrape. Um, so I don't worry about it. I use, um, I have certainly had deer pictures of the deer looking right directly at the camera. 
I think what that is, they hear something. I think some cameras have some sort of internal noise when they take a picture. And generally at night, it's that filter. It's that red little filter that flips over your lens. Um, expensive cameras don't do that. I don't really buy expensive cameras because I don't need to and I'm going to lose them. I don't think the camera is spooking a deer. I've gotten too many pictures of where they look at the camera and then they're right back to doing what they're doing. And again, the the advantage the camera gives me is infinitely more. The upside is just so much higher than the potential of me spooking um, the deer anyway. Because I'm if anything's going to spook them, it's the fact that I just walked down that trail and walked around their scrape 10 hours, five hours, whatever it is before that camera took their picture. I'm leaving scent. That's going to happen. So I'm not worried about the camera. Um, I'm way more worried about not knowing what bucks were hitting that scrape when I wasn't there. Yeah. So then what next when it comes to checking those cameras for these traveling hunts, are you trying to use cell cams almost a hundred percent now for those? So you don't need to physically go back and look or. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm every camera I'm going to put out is a cell camera. Okay. It doesn't mean I always have service and that's what really gets irritating, but (laughs) pretty much anymore. Now that you have Verizon and AT&T versions, and I carry both always. So I generally will take six cameras with me on a trip, three AT&T, three Verizon. That's smart. Just so that I have what will work. Um, If I don't get service, and and I did write about in the book a little bit too, I'm just, I'm too anxious and nervous. I can't sit all day very well if I'm not seeing deer. So that I generally plan the first day that I hunt, I'm going to get down about 11, 1130, and I'm going to go check cameras if they're not sending pictures to me. Um, and then I just go check them real quick. I just, you know, buzz in there. I, I use a, a bike as much as I can where it's legal. The bike makes a big difference because it saves me time. I think it does save on the scent as well. And if they do see a bike coming buzzing at them, I don't know, maybe they think that's not a hunter. I don't know if deer can think that way, but um, I'm going to check those cameras daily until if I don't get pictures like the first night and I think the scrape is really good, I'll leave it. If it, if I was kind of on the fence about whether it was a great spot or not, I'll go ahead and find another place for that camera on the second day. Hmm. Wow. So what about your hunting? Like you, you set up your stand on day one in one of those spots. You hunt there the next morning. Uh, let's say you don't see anything that first morning and you don't have pictures of any mature bucks on those cameras yet. Are you relocating stuff already or do you just keep going back to the well and give it some time? That Well, that's it's super hard for me because I want to bail. But that deer I just told you about, um, I had been there. So I had one day to scout and I didn't see a single deer. And I didn't see a deer in that entire state when I was driving through it. I found that area with the scrapes and a bunch of rubs and it looked awesome. And it was only 75 yards from my parking spot. And I sat there the first morning until about 10 o'clock because it was getting really, really windy and I hadn't found any other places for cameras. So I was going to get down. Didn't see a deer that whole day. I sat there the second morning and it was about 1030 and I hadn't seen a single deer and I was fighting with every ounce of my being not to bail 
and literally take the tree stand with me on the way out and just relocate to an entirely different part of the state and start all over. And I looked up and he came walking through (laughs) and I shot him. And that's the only deer I saw on that whole trip. Wow. (laughs) It's, I don't know the right answer. I wish I did. Part of the time, if I can talk myself into it, I'm going to give it, the scrapes are there for a reason. That's what I have to keep telling myself. And if they're active and there's, you know, big rubs, give me a lot of confidence. I'm going to leave it until I have a reason not to. And most of the time I don't have a reason not to, because it's not like if I was seeing deer other places, I would move there. But I set up my cameras in the stand based on that's the best stuff I was able to find in the time I had. And I have to trust it. That's what, that's the trap I would fall into previously. If I didn't see a deer or I didn't like it, I just kept looking and looking and looking and looking. And I, ne- I ended up just never hunting yeah. and never actually spending the time that it took to hunt. So I'm going to leave them a day or two, probably two days by the third day. If nothing's on it, then I'm, I'm getting panicked, but honestly, that shouldn't ever happen. Um, if it's past October 15th, there's not going to be three days that go by without bucks on those scrapes. Yeah. Now, what about the flip side of that where you have hunted and you spot one, you spot a buck you you would like to get a shot at, but he's out of range and he's not hitting those scrapes. So he's not around those scrapes. He's somewhere, you know, in within sight, but not within shooting range. Do you immediately relocate? You know, as soon as that deer is out of range, do you wait to the next day? Do you think, well, that might have been random. I'm going to stick to this spot because there's the scrapes and he should come back through. There's a better chance yeah. he'll be here. What about that? If Did I see him making any scrapes or he was just walking along? I'm going to say he's just walking along. But tell me, what no. you, if, tell me how scrapes would change your thoughts. Yeah, I'm not going to move because he's going to come to those scrapes at some point. Now, if he was over there working scrapes is literally the second I can't see him, I'm down and I'm moving the stand over there. Um, if it's one, I really, really want to shoot. Now, if it's, you know, middle of the road and I'm like, yeah, I would shoot him, but he's not, he's not the biggest buck I think is here. Then I probably wouldn't, but, um, whatever scrape that deer is on actively. And if he, he had to like really worked it and spent time and did the licking branch and all of that stuff. If he just like pawed once or twice, he might just be, you know, sexually frustrated (laughs) so (laughs) but um if he really worked it over i'm gonna i'm gonna be there and if that was the morning i probably expect to shoot him that afternoon because i think he'll be right back in there what about if there's a buck on a doe either chasing a doe or locked on a doe how do you move on situations like that do you just do whatever you can i mean when they're locked on to the does in that particular deer and you can see him do whatever you can to get him killed eventually he's coming back to that scrape but you might it might be three days i mean he's going to come back through those areas not just to work the scrape that's just where he goes and he's using that area as kind of scent check like a lot of times i i think i had it wrong when i used to write about this i always talked about i wanted to hunt those doe bedding areas during the rut and i do but there's tons of scrapes around there. The reason being is because the bucks are leaving scent, the does are leaving scent. So yeah, I was hunting the doe bedding areas, but I was actually hunting those scrape lines and just didn't realize it. Hmm. So once he loses that doe, he's going to be back on his prowl pattern and where he prowls, there will be scrapes. 
if he's locked down hard, I know that's not going to happen for a little while. So you have nothing to lose. Just if you can get snuck up on him, do whatever you can do. I suck at that. So I know, I mean, it's probably never going to happen that I kill one that way. But if I see him bed down or locked down with him, I'll go try it. Yeah. What about calling? You, you talked a little bit in the book about calling in somewhere like Michigan versus somewhere like the Great Plains. Uh, would you ever try to call a buck off a doe? Or is that just a lost cause in your perspective? I would try it. I mean, I'll try anything at that point. But, I mean, do you remember the first time you rattled horns and a deer came in? Were you mm. like, holy cow, this works. Yeah, <laughs> I, was, most, I was stuck. Yeah, my early, my early so rattling long. all did what you just said, which would be they all go the other the other way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I tried it for so long. And then I did it and it was like, holy cow. So, yeah, I would, I would, definitely, I would definitely rattle at him. Um, and see what happens, but I've never really had it. I've never really been able to pull a buck away. Um, and I don't, I want to use decoys so badly, but I'm not really in the situations where I hunt that a decoy is practical. I just get tired of carrying it around and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. They're hard to justify in traveling situations, especially like that. Yeah. But they are awesome when they work. And I, I mean, the stuff Jared and Chansey do from Whitetail Adrenaline yeah. is just it's awesome. It's hard to argue with that when you see how it works. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't want to cover everything in the book because I want to make sure folks uh, know there's a lot more to, to cover in there, which, which I think there is. Um, but I do think it's worth wrapping up with your final principle, which, which maybe is what I'd it's like my biggest takeaway from the book in general is your, is your final principle and how you kind of wrapped it all up because it, it has reminded me to chill the hell out on some of my stuff <laughs> and look at the way you have started trimming stuff down. Can you talk a little bit about this final principle and, and why you put it here at the very end while the other two at the beginning? Yeah. I mean, one of them, so there's, I mean, there's two reasons. There's a practical reason and then there's just a personal reason. And I guess I'll start with the practical first. It's when, you know, with the career that I had and the things that it's not like I don't know a lot about a deer. I mean, I can point out their glands and name some of the Latin stuff of them. And it's not like I don't know what types of scrapes are what and why they use them. And, you know, I don't, it's not like I don't know the chemical makeup. I mean, I sent, True story. I sent deer piss <laughs> to a hospital to have a urinalysis done. I love it. I love that. <laughs> it's not that I don't know that, but we get so caught up in all of the, like, knowing everything there is to know, and we lose sight of the fact that knowing it doesn't help you kill any deer if you're making it so convoluted and complex and hard to do any of you're just, you're stuck in one spot. You can have a, you know, I, I always look at guys who put a lot of stuff on their bow and what I think is one of the worst inventions of the history of bow hunting is the adjustable single pin sight. <laughs> so you're telling me I need at the deep, because I think most people are, are like me when you, see a giant buck coming your way that your first thought is, holy crap, it might actually happen. I've waited so long and worked so hard for this. 
and your adrenaline is crazy and you're shaking and all of those things. You're telling me somebody thought it was a good idea to that at that point you should have to know the exact yardage to adjust your pin on your bow. And if you don't, you're going to miss. That is what I mean. Like we have taken something simple and basic and made it so mechanical that we've lost sight of it. So for me, I was having trouble making decisions of where to hunt, when to hunt, how to hunt, even why to hunt, to be honest with you. And that's where some of the personal stuff came in. I just wanted all that stuff stripped out. Now, if I find scrapes, I know Buck's made it. If I hide a tree stand near a path that leads to those scrapes or, you know, on top of the scrape if I have to, and I hunt there, pretty good odds I'm going to get a shot at one of those bucks. I don't need to know anything else. I don't need to do anything else. I don't need to think about anything else. It's made it more fun. I got rid of a bunch of gear. I don't, I don't worry about it. It doesn't mean I'm cheap. I'll still spend good money on good equipment. I just have way less of it. And if I don't need to spend good money on it and it's still good, I don't care what brand it is. The personal side of it is a lot of that. I just didn't like the commercialization anymore. I didn't like kind of the space I had put myself in and the way that I had kind of branded myself, so to speak. I didn't like any of it. And so I just decided to change it. And I don't think there's anything wrong with dummying things down if it makes you more successful and just taking a lot of the crap out. I still post on social media because it's fun and I want to see what my friends killed and I like to see what other people killed, but I don't worry so much about the image of it. It doesn't matter. I'm just going to try to shoot big deer. And I've last three or four years, I've done a lot better than I had done in the three or four years. And some of those deer, I didn't even put a picture up of just didn't matter at that point, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a great reminder. Simple works. I mean, I, I need that reminder because I'm, I'm the personality type where I can overcomplicate stuff a lot <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and get into that whole analysis paralysis stuff. So it's because, uh, you're, it's because you're, you're, you have the capacity to learn yeah. like you, you're a learner and you want to learn. And what I really don't want people to think is that dummying things down or doing things simple means you're stupid or that you're not learning. I think it means you're learning better. It means you're learning that this knowledge is useful, but the application is got to have its place. How do you, how do you, how do you translate that though? For, I mean, my, my instinct tells me that like, you can't get to the place that you're at where you can keep it simple until you have enough experience to know like what matters and what doesn't or what matters for you and your situation. Is there any other way to go about like filtering all this stuff or is it simply you have to put this stuff into practice and then figure out what the right fit is for you and then find that system? I think, unfortunately, you're right. A lot of it is experience. Um, I know that I couldn't, and I'm still not. Like, I'm, I still struggle big time with those decisions, but nothing like I would have 10 or 15 years ago. And I don't think I was ready to, I didn't know enough. So even though it's simple, it's because the more things that you understand and learn and know, you're able to have more confidence that you're okay in what you're doing. 
you know, just like we talked about before, 10 years ago, if I saw a big buck go up a tree line and he was out of range, I'm down and I'm moving my stand. Now I'm thinking if he didn't make a scrape or do something that tells me he wants to keep returning to that tree line, there's, there's no point in me doing that. His sign is here. The sign that he returns to is here. Just trust that. That's a simple way of thinking about a whole lot of experiences and complex things that you've tried and done and learned from in the past. So it maybe it's not even just simplifying things. It's more about trusting the things that you've learned. And I think that a lot of people have that, that issue. It's why we put so much stuff on our bows. It's why we, you know, rely so much on the comparison stuff on social media and we have all, you know, these fancy things. We don't really trust ourselves. You know, we need to have that aura or that image to, in case we don't succeed. Yeah. So what would, this is, this is a really good place to think wrap up. What would the final, what's your final message to folks that maybe have found themselves in that position? There's, there's, I'm, I'm a lot, I'm sure there's a lot of folks out there right now who are in that, who have gotten really excited about this deer hunting thing, who have dove in head first, who, who really like it, but also maybe aren't quite comfortable in their own skin yet as far as what they're doing how they're doing it uh, what they're doing looks like compared to everybody else um you've kind of been through the ringer you've come out the other side and, and, and you're in a different place now than maybe you were 10 years ago what's the final parting words before we wrap this up there's not the things that we tend to focus on so much don't matter there's not a lot of things that do you know um if you enjoy what you're doing and you think eventually you can be successful at it, then keep doing it that way. The things that you're seeing in a lot of, you know, media outlets, it's not your situation. It's not a situation that you can duplicate or replicate. So it, it doesn't matter so much. Um, just if you're making mistakes and you're never killing anything, you got to ask yourself why, and is it something that I'm doing that I can change and then change it, but don't change just for the sake of changing. You have to have, you have to be able to think through the decisions that you're making and don't make it harder than it is. If there's a scrape and a deer trail and some buck rubs, it's because bucks went through there. So if you spend some time there, probably going to see another buck that you can shoot. It doesn't have to be any harder than that. And, and just shoot them in the lungs and, You'd be good. <laughs> Wise words right there, Tony. Uh, I, I would recommend folks go out and pick up your book right now. I really enjoyed it. It it It's a breath of fresh air, I think, in a lot of ways from from other things out there. And uh, if you anyone who listens to this conversation, I think we'll have a good sense of, of how that's the case. Uh, where can people find the book? Where should they go buy this? It's just on Amazon. Like I said, I just self-published it. I honestly never even really intended... For it to sell anything. Amazon was just an easy way for me to get 20 copies for myself. <laughs> so um, it's you just will go to Amazon and you can Google uh, my name or Antler Geeks Manifesto and it should or uh, search, not Google, but on Amazon and search it and it should pop up there. Perfect. Well, uh, I enjoyed it, Tony, and I enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Uh, thanks for writing this. Thanks for taking the time to talk about it too. No problem at all. Anytime. All right. And that's a wrap. Like I mentioned, Tony Hansen's book 
in Antler Geeks Manifesto. Pick it up. Give it a read. It's it's a quick read, but it's worth it. I enjoyed it. I think if you heard our conversation today here, you're going to understand why. So head on over to Amazon, pick up a copy, and then uh, get to work. So until next time, thank you all for tuning in. Thanks for being a part of this community. I appreciate it. I think that, uh, man, the Wired to Hunt audience, you guys and gals, are uh, you're my kind of people. And I'm glad that we can spend a little time every week chatting and geeking out on deer and deer hunting because uh, there's a lot of stuff out there in the world that's kind of lousy. But this is one of those things that is not. This is just some good stuff. And thank goodness for that. So until next time, thank you and stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.